0: Well, good morning as we gather on this thursday the seventh week of easter we we often have heard and we can find in scripture many times statements such that we needn't worry so much about what to say in sharing our faith or defending our faith that the holy spirit will imbue us with that insight if we're attentive to the spirit's indwelling we'll be given the words to say in helping to share the gospel and in and in defending our belief. Why do you believe what you believe? And today we have so beautifully from this accounting in Acts and in in Jesus' beautiful testimony before he goes into his passion, such words that we can share. As we look forward beautifully to this weekend, as we celebrate the Pentecost festivities in our church, we are concluding the story of Acts that we've been so diligently examining and studying with intent since the mystery of Easter. We then spend eight weeks in the, in the book of Acts. And we do that, the architects of our lectionary do that for a reason, to help tell us how the early church came to be. How did this happen? And today we are in the 23rd chapter of Acts in Luke's accounting of the early church, and we have Paul uh, has returned to Jerusalem. This is on the return leg of his third missionary journey, and we're told with great detail, as Acts often does, as Luke gives us in Acts, rather, that he stopped in Kos and Rhodes and Patara. He sailed by the island of Cyprus. He could see it. And then he lands in Tyre and then heads down to Jerusalem, where he's met with James, or James meets him. There's a lot of detail there that we can grab onto. We can trace his missionary journeys and uh, biblical scholars have done so in beautiful maps that fit in most of our Bibles. But it's in this uh, return to Jerusalem that he's then taken into captivity. And as we hear today in Acts, he's questioned before a council of elders of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish community. And Paul is uh, quite an interesting individual because he's, we know him to be uh, trilingual so he speaks, we know for certain, Greek and Hebrew. It's quite possible he spoke Latin as well because he's a Roman citizen, and he would have had to have gone through, like we do in the United States, a test of citizenry in order to gain that. So he, and he was educated in Athens and Jerusalem. So he's quite a, an informed individual who's able to engage in multiples of cultures. He's a smart man, we can say. And taken before this council, they are very angry at him because of the way and what he has been promoting. And he's a man of considerable credential. He, he reminds them that he was schooled at the knee of Gamaliel. He tells us that back actually in the 22nd chapter. He says, at the feet of Gamaliel, I was educated strictly in our ancestral law and was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. And they know that. They know that he's been to the school of schools uh, and they realize that his knowledge of the faith is profound, that he made a career of attempting to disband the way and persecute the way. They know that. They know who he is. But twice in Acts, the uh, those who've assembled and are holding him in account have made a mistake. They did it in chapter 16 when they were back in Philippi, and they threw him in chains, and the jailer realizes there's an earthquake, as you recall. this was two weeks ago. The chains are loosened. The jailer sets him free. The jailer attempts to kill himself, and Paul says, "Don't do that. it's OK. The jailer invites him to his home. The family's baptized. And then Paul says, so beautifully, back in 16, he says, "They have beaten us publicly, even though we are Roman citizens, and have not been tried and have thrown us into prison." And now these magistrates who threw us into jail are attempting to release us secretly. Paul says, by no means is that going to happen. You tell those jailers to get down here and they will escort us out of prison. So he holds these jailers who are Roman uh, authorities to account for their actions because they have violated their own law, which was to ro- throw a Roman citizen into prison without a trial. That's wasn't allowed in the first century, at least under the Roman Roman leadership. So he holds him to account and he does the same so today in Acts again now we're in the 23rd chapter and as our reading our passage began today it says Pauls before the Sanhedrin and it says Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin so he's not there in a cowering bent over submissive way he's standing before them and he looks intently in fact he looks right at Ananias the leader of the Sanhedrin and he says my brothers i have conducted myself with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. Then Paul looks at Ananias and he says, this is in the chapter, it wasn't in our our excerpt for today, our pericope. He says to Ananias, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You you empty grave, you're, you're nothing but a beautiful outside and a putrid inside, that's what you are. That's what he's saying to the leader of the Sanhedrin, winning friends and influencing people as we would say. Then he drops this little reminder to him. He says, brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees, and I'm on trial for hope in the resurrection of the dead. And it was, as we say in our contemporary lingo, that was a mic drop moment because now the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, turned into a dusty scrum because the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection angels and spirits, and the Pharisees absolutely did. So now what are they going to do? Because Paul's created complexity. He's both a very well-educated, adherent, faithful Pharisee. They know that from his life of testimony, life lived. And he's a Roman citizen. So now they're all in trouble because the Pharisees are not going to put their own brother in faith on trial in front of the Sadducees, who disagree with what the Pharisees absolutely believe to be true. And that we hear then read today a little bit later in our passage. Now the the commander of the Roman guards present has a problem because he realizes he's a Roman citizen who's about to be, as we hear said, torn to pieces by these these, uh, peers in the faith, the the Jewish leaders that are there. So Paul's created quite a stir by holding people to account for what they actually believe. You Pharisees believe this? Stand in your faith. You Roman guards of the citizenry believe this? Stand in your belief as a Roman citizen. Do that. And he's holding them to account for what they believe. As we look to the gospel, we have then so beautifully said from John, or captured by John, Jesus' words. This is again in chapter 17. It's the conclusion of 17 before Christ goes into his passion, but he's been praying for us. He says that I pray for them and not for the world. You heard that on Tuesday. And today, he gives us this beautiful beautiful passage because he's telling us, uh, quite frankly, this phrase. This is something I'll leave you with for this Thursday. He tells us, Father, they are your gift to me. They are your gift to me. So let's tie the narrative in Acts and this beautiful statement in our passage from John's Gospel today together. When I was in my final year of seminary, I had the privilege of studying at the knee of Father Sean Weeks. He is the pastor of a very large parish in Portland, St. Also St. Pius X uh, Church in Portland, big church, three thousand families, a very large church. Great pastor, he, interesting man. He'd been a police officer for many years, and then he was a monk for. I think about seven years, and then he became a diocesan priest. So he's a dynamic individual. Father Sean said to me one time, we're vesting in the sacristy. We're talking about some of, the, some of the challenges in leading that community and in his life of priesthood, because he's forming me. And he said to me, he said, John, I, I've met in my years as a priest and as a monk many, many people who are angry at the church, He said, but I haven't actually met one who's mad at what the church actually teaches. I've met many people who are mad at the church, but I've not met one who's mad at what the church actually teaches. I've met that person. And his point was that when we encounter individuals who are angry at Christianity at large, or Catholicism more specifically, or our immediate parish, they're typically pointing us to a person. Well, that pope or those people, or those bishops, or that priest, or those people in the congregation, tend to be the focus of their ire. It's generally not something they believe. And from the, from the narrative that we were given by Luke in Acts today, we can take a couple of examples. This is the Holy Spirit giving us the words to say. Most beautifully amplified and most principally amplified by Jesus' words. In our own families, this can happen. We can have a conversation with a loved one, could be a spouse, or if you're a parent to an adult child who disagrees with your walk in the faith. Some things I wanna just share with you and we'll do it very briefly. Know this, we were were told this uh, again on Tuesday in Acts. Paul says to the, the immediacy of those he's with, on his return journey, remember he's in Miletus and in Ephesus, he says, I do, I've given you the truth. I do not have blood on my hands is a phrase. So he's saying, I'm, I can't make you believe the Christian narrative. I can't make you believe the gospel truth of Jesus Christ. None of us can make another person believe that. So we shouldn't try to make them believe it because that will be frustrating for them and frustrating for us. We don't make anyone believe something. We generously share our belief with them, but we don't make them believe it. Christianity is not spread through the sword and coercion. It is not. It's spread through compassion, generosity, authenticity. That's how it's spread. So if we're in dialogue today, right now in our lives, with someone who disagrees with the faith, perhaps a couple of questions. You can ask them, well, Please understand, dear one, to whoever whom we're talking, whether it's a family member or a a friend or someone on the plane, you're not required to believe any of this. You're not required to believe it. You're invited to believe it. Start with that affirmation. Secondly, um, we could observe, and maybe it's been true in your experience as well, much as it was for Father Sean, when I'm hearing you and I'm listening to your concerns about Christianity, I'm hearing you mention people. You're mentioning, you're mentioning uh, this person or that group of people or that priest or that televangelist, or you're mentioning these indiv- The Pope. You're mentioning these people. I'm not hearing you mention Jesus Christ, upon whom the faith is centered. So, w- um, what are your concerns with Jesus Christ? What are your concerns with Him, not the people, the imperfect people, who are attempting to follow Him? Because your concern seems to be with Not him, but with people who follow after him. Help me with that. And then see if there's uh, an answer there. There might be. See if there is. And then ask the question, how does my belief impair your life? Help me to know that. How does my belief and faith impair your life? Because you're not required to believe it, But I do. It's my identity. And you asking me to not believe it is asking me to shed my identity as a a human, which I'm not able to do. So how does my walk in faith impair your life? Because you're not required to believe what I believe. Now, in a uh, marital relationship, husband and wife, that's a beautiful opportunity to explore how it is that we are married and what does marriage mean. There's an opportunity there to say, well, you're you're going to church all the time, messes up my Sunday morning. To wit we can offer, well dear one, I, when I'm at church, I'm actually carrying you with me. So whether you're here at home or with me, it's, you're there with me in my heart, offered up in prayer, I love you. My offering of authentic love for you is actually expressed in uniting with my Lord, with you on your behalf, that's what I'm doing. And then understand that further, there's dialogue you all know, those that are married about how you navigate that. A child may say, Mom, I don't want to go to Mass in the morning. You disrupt my day by requiring me to go to Mass. And to it, we can reply as parents, well, young one, if they're baptized, I actually promised that I would do this. So I'm modeling for you the importance of keeping promises. That's what I'm doing. And by the way, I'm taking you to Mass, where you may not understand all that's happening, but you are encountering the real presence of Christ in the Word and in the community and as you mature in the faith through the Eucharist. So I'm giving you a gift, much as we are the gift that God gave Jesus our Savior. In conclusion, it's this, is that we have so beautifully modeled for us in Scripture what to say. And the encouragement is, in our own human limitations we are not always going to know what to say or how to say it or be clever enough with our words. My, my constant suggestion to self beginning with me and to all of us is to return again and again and again to Scripture make reading of Scripture a daily habit because you will find in there the beautifully articulated Holy Spirit inspired words of truth that we can share gently and confidently looking the Sanhedrin in the eyes, as Paul did, and asking a few questions to see where that person may open a door of opportunity because we are sent into the world to bring hope. Uh, We are not sent with uh, bricks to bash people over the head and say, you must believe this. No, you don't have to believe it. You're welcome to believe it. But we're given the words of how to open those locked doors, and those doors are locked through experiences in life, and we have the privilege of of the gospel truth that we can bring into the world and continue to be that that beacon of hope that's so desperately called for. Amen.